All right, here we go. Can you believe it's stinking Friday? Every year the same thing happens. You know, whenever a new group comes together, even though you know many of us knew each other, all of us didn't, and you kind of wonder on Sunday, okay, how's this group going to gel? How's this group going to interact and relate? And then, you know, Sunday, you kind of have that little dance going on, and then Monday it starts to go. Tuesday's when we hit our stride a little bit, and I mean, all of a sudden it's Friday. And you kind of think, oh man, i got to pack tonight. <laughs> And drive back to 100 degree temperature and all that different stuff. But our hope, as always, is that this week, um, you know, will go with us. The things that we've talked about, the the things we've been reminded of, the things that we've experienced with one another, we'd pursue in Dallas. And um, I just want to tell you guys how really encouraged we are by uh, just just the way we see you loving each other, and um, how that spurs me on, and how uh, our hope is that those of us that God really called away to a lonely place, and, and I know you guys you know, sacrifice a significant amount of time and money to do it, to come, and to make your vacation one that probably isn't as comfortable in many, many ways as other vacations. You know, you're sharing a room, one room, uh, around lots of people. You know, the food is what it is when you eat in a large group setting like this. Uh, you lose flexibility, you know, every morning and every night you're kind of here, but we hope that what God builds into our life here does carry back into Dallas and that we multiply the things that are of Christ that we've gotten here back in the community back in Dallas and remind them of these things. You know, you don't need to come to Colorado to have this, but it does help wherever it is that you get away. God just always has done that. It's the people that just get away. He calls folks to a lonely place um, or just away from the routine where he does a good and special work. So let me just pray for us. And I know Bron just did, but Father, I do... Um, I just want to faithfully and rightly uh, represent your word and remind uh, your people, my friends, of things that are true, that it would change who we are, that we would uh, uh, walk, Father, not in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, which are all around us, but that our delight would be in the law of the Lord and on that law we'd meditate day and night. Help us to hold fast to the word that we might have a single mind that is submissive the way Christ was submissive, that is uh, spiritual in its uh, inklings and uh, focus, and therefore secure in this world. Make us people who love, who are holy and set apart and different, and uh, who are courageous and filled with joy. So uh, use just this last little bit of time we have together in our last day just to relax and be refreshed and be energized to go to war and to live rightly for you first in our families, then in our community with other believers, and uh, actively, Father, among a crooked and perverse generation. We pray that we would be your lights in this world. Amen. All right, well, look, you know, one of the things I I, I wouldn't mind doing, just to start, is if there's anything that we kind of blew through yesterday, or touched on yesterday, somebody go, man, go back and elaborate on this, or you said this, or I didn't get that completely. Is there anything like that? This is one of the things we get to do here. Uh, that I don't usually get to do in Dallas. So is there anything like that? I know I've had a few little conversations with folks about one or two small things, but just in a group like this, anybody got uh, something that um, they want to go over or be reminded of? All right, good. Perfect. Well, let's go in. I want to just go right back to chapter 213. Uh, I'm going to have to cover, obviously, this book differently toward the end. I'm going to give you major themes of chapter 3 and 4. and, and even just as we go back today to take a look, I mean, we're at the very key part 
of what I think all of Scripture says, which is he who humbles himself will be exalted, he exalts himself is going to be humbled. And, and so I, I said this at the end of yesterday, you know, how does God um, want you, what's the ability through which you'll live for him? And, and I mentioned in verse 13, it's God who is at work in you. Both the will and the work for his good pleasure. That word work is a great word. It's, it's, it's the word that we get energy from. Okay? But I want to remind you that while you're here, there is still other things at work in you. And then we went to where? Romans 7, 14 and following. One of the things that's at, that's at work in us is just this body of death that our flesh, okay, uh, our human appetites, our human reasoning, um, all our learning to live our will and way that Christ has had to reparent, retrain, we are being reborn, okay, and made into uh, the full glory of what God intended us to, but, but your body of death, if you will, Paul calls it your flesh, the, the, the mind of man, not the mind of Christ, is still there, and don't be discouraged when you find yourself still, still um, being attracted to sin, because the other thing that's still at work is the enemy is still at work in this world. Okay, um, you know, First Peter five eight says that your enemy, you know, Satan, is a roaring lion, lion prowling about, seeking who he might devour, and he appeals to that nature of ours that is still longing for just you know uh, self exaltation and comfort. And Christ is saying that's because you guys have not, you, you, you rebelled against me and now you're learning again who I am. When we left him, we moved increasingly towards death, but he's called us back through Christ. He modeled where life is. He showed us what love is. And we're coming home. I used this illustration before on a Sunday morning, but I'll do it real quick. Uh, just, I, I had a dog that I was in a great relationship with and um, would listen to every voice, you know, every word that I would say, every will and way. And, and let's just say that I was abusive to him. And he had lived with me, you know, seven years. And as Ernest Borden used to tell us, that's 49 years to you and me, right? And so that dog, for, for first, in effect, five human decades of its life, knew my voice. It was a one-voice dog. And, and, and um, I, I was abusive to it. And you were a dog lover, and you came and you offered me enough money that I go, I don't care about the mud, I'll take all that cash. You know, some crazy amount of money, you redeemed him from me. And then you're going to teach him to love, you're going you're to care for him, you're not going to abuse him anymore, you're not going to leave him, you know, uh, in an exposed area. You're going to really care for him and teach him how to have a loving relationship with a human owner. Okay, now if I walk by, that dog has been set free from me, I no longer own it. But if I walk by your front yard and I go, hey, and I give him the whistle I gave him, I use my voice, everything in him is going to go, I've got to respond to that. I've got to go. All right? And, 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 and run, but you're going to say, to him, no, no, no. And they're going to learn a new voice. No, you don't have to go. He's not your master anymore. But everything in your flesh is going to want to pull that direction. Okay, even though you've been adopted by God, even though you've been redeemed by God. And that continues to happen to us, I think, our entire journey here. Because our flesh was sold into sin when our forefathers, you know, gave themselves away. And we've been born into sin, and it's just in our DNA. But what Christ has done is he's infused into us a Holy Spirit, a different mind, and a different relationship. Okay, there is a real reality it's not this is not just christian psychology there is a real relationship a tangible presence that is hard to fully understand and explain 
But, but suffice it to say, it really is a transformed understanding through a relationship with a real person, Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus, that dwells with us. He is alive and His Spirit is here. It is living and active. And He's given us His Word that we might know the mind of Christ. But don't be discouraged. I can remember when I first trusted Christ. Second Timothy, Second Corinthians five seventeen was one of the first verses I learned. You know, which says, "Behold, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Behold, old things have passed away; new things have come." And I would used to, I used to think, "Well, man, the old things haven't passed away. I still am selfish and lustful, and you know, whatever your little deals are, you just throw them in there." And so I thought I must not have really taken. Well, what changed is before I just kind of did those things and wanted to manage them so that it wouldn't, you know, have me banished from society. But I didn't really resent those things, regret those things, or seek to avoid those things. What changed is I learned that my way of operating did lead to death and that Christ showed me a better way. And so the old thing that passed away was that my way of managing life and my coping strategies weren't really where life was. The new things that have come is I learned that God did have my best interest in mind. He was there. He wasn't looking for performance from me that he would grade and maybe let me in to his heaven, which was some boring place where I sat on a cloud with some wings and strum a, you know, strummed a harp. I learned truth. Okay, and so what now had come was a heart that had been transformed and I was being I was spiritually praised and I'm learning to love the things that God loves that are good for me and will bring blessing. But my flesh is still at work. The enemy is still at work. But what God is saying, Todd, I care about you. Okay, and so what God always does is he works on the workman. All right. If you change the work, okay, if the workman, if you will, excuse me, is what he ought to be, then the work will be what it's supposed to be. In other words, so many of us, all we want is behavior modification. But the problem with behavior modification is you've got to always be there to manage it. You know the old statement that people don't do what you expect, they do what you inspect? Okay? That's not really how God operates. Okay? What, what God wants to just say is, look, I, I mean, I will inspect what you do, but what I really want to do is I want to transform you. I want the workman to change so that your heart is to live as I want you to live. If the workman's life is changed, then the work will change. And the most valuable people that we all have are folks that we can turn our back on. Why? Because we know who they are. They're people of character. Their person has been transformed. And this is what Paul is arguing to the Philippians. You've been transformed by who Christ is. Now remember how I said yesterday there's nothing quite as annoying as a good example? And the reason I say that is because good examples can inspire us, but they don't really empower us. In fact, they sometimes make us feel guilty because they go, man, I wish I could be like that, but I don't know how to be like that. And so that's why this verse is there, is that Christ is your example. But guess what else he is? He is your your energy, to use the word. He is what's working in you and through you. And you go, well, how does that happen? The answer is, as you surrender to him, as you decrease and he increases, there is a living God who walks with you, who speaks to you, who informs you, who trains you, okay? But he is so uh, humble. He, he whispers, he, he puts his voice before you in the form of his word, and he says, just be attentive to it, hold fast to this. And he'll still let you just ignore him. But at the end of the day, he's going to keep coming after you to woo you back. Okay? And so this is important. Christ isn't just there to inspire us. 
He is here to empower us and to work in us. And so the life which we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and delivered himself up for us. You're going to find this throughout the entire book of Philippians. Okay? Um, One of the things that really helps you learn books is what you want to do is stop and, and, and when you read a book, is go, okay, what words are repeated? There's really three words that are repeated all throughout Philippians. One of them is rejoice or joy. About 14 different times. Paul is talking about how to live with this courageous, bring it on life. Nothing's going to throw me off kilter um, because I know this world is not my home. Okay? And so this is how you can live with joy. That's one of them. Another word is the word um, Mind. Okay, you're going to find mind or think show up all through the book of Philippians. And it shows up, you know, uh, some, let me just make sure I don't get my numbers crossed. I was looking at this again this morning, about ten times. You throw think in a few more times. Remember, you know, it's in, you know, in, the, in the low teens. And then the other one is things, which is really what you focus on. That shows up just in chapter three alone, almost, you know, ten, eleven times. And he's going to say the things that you care about is going to really affect your life. And so you see Paul's trying to focus us on the right things, with, have the right mind, so that we would experience joy. Okay? Set your mind on things above. That's what life is. This world is passing away. It's, it's judged. Paradise has been lost. And God will one day destroy it. Because it's not consistent with his character and nature. And so it's not going to endure forever. But he will remake this. And he says, set your mind on those things and the goodness and character of God just called you out of that judgment into life. And he is with you to work in you. All right? But follow him. Listen to him. Learn from him. And then Paul, like we should be able to say, says this repeatedly throughout the book. Follow me. Learn from me. Okay? Now, let's just uh, um, look over here at verse 14. He says, you know, one of the greatest acts of a servant is this. One of the greatest marks that you're truly a servant is that when you are treated like one, you don't complain. Right? You know what I mean by that? Because I don't mind serving people as long as they make a big deal out of me serving people. Which means I'm really not serving people because, you know, you don't make a big deal out of... How many of you have stopped and gone on and on about the folks that have changed your towels and cleaned your room and empty trash around here? It's their job. It's what they do. And servants just serve. That's what they do. And they don't, they don't resent that they serve. It's just their role. And what, what Paul is saying is, look, when you serve, don't go around mourning and woe is me. And, you know, the old statement is like your face is a cover shot for the book of Lamentations. All right? What you, what you want to be is somebody that just goes, look, I'm going to get at this. Because if you are grumbling and disputing that this isn't good, you don't know God. And, and, you know, he wrote this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where he said, don't be like those folks in the desert that were constantly grumbling and disputing and said it was better if we go back and be slaves in Egypt. Paul's saying, look, man, God will take care of you. He's not going to forget. But just don't grow weary in doing good. He's going to take care of you. All right? Because, look, if you're going around serving, and this is where the church is, we act like we're getting punished by God. And people go, they don't look like people that the joy of the Lord is on them. And, and so much of it is because of the leadership of the church and the forms that we've used, and the traditions that we've uh, venerated, there is not a lot of joy in a lot of gatherings where people of God are together. There's a lot of fear, a lot of propriety, a lot of working over our neck, and this, this supposed that we're supposed to act like this when we go there. Instead of love, okay, and care and celebration. Now, Paul does say, don't just 
put on a happy face. You know, he's saying, weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn, but rejoice with those who rejoice, and remind yourself of these things. Okay? So, keep at it. Alright. There's verse 16 again. Alright? Holding fast that word of life. Verse 17, I love this. Paul says, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with all of you. All right, let me just remind you, this little book that is so much about joy was written by a guy that was in prison, chained to a Roman guard. He is a preacher by calling. He was forbidden to preach. And the people in the community that were with him that took the same name of Christ were divided against him. Okay, so this is a guy that's living it, all right? And yet this is a book about how you can be joyful. But, but when you read something like this right here in verse uh, 17, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice of the service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with all of you. So when you read something like that, it doesn't mean much to you, but you want to stop and go, well, what in the world is a drink offering? Remember when you were a kid and you were reading, your teachers always used to tell you if you read a word and you don't understand what it means, what are you supposed to do? Look it up. If you see a reference in Scripture that you go, I have no idea what that means, stop and look it up. I mean, the beauty of the Internet is now you don't have to be a Bible scholar. You just type in drink offering. And with very little effort, you're going to get, you know, at least a little help. Okay, a drink offering. Let me just tell you this. A drink offering was something that was poured out uh, on a meal offering, a grain offering, um, uh, and, and you kind of go, well, that doesn't help me. You're using you know, the term to define the term. But, but let me just tell you why I use some of these. It was never used for a, to, to supplement a sin offering or what was called uh, a trespass offering. What they were is they were either annual offerings that were given because you were as an individual in, in your class an offense to God because you were a sinner. And you never added a drink offering to a sin offering. You never added a drink offering to a trespass offering, which is not the, the, the general offering that was out there for the sins of the community, but your specific sin. You would come and bring a trespass offering, which is a constant reminder by God that sin offends Him and that life is lost when you sin and blood must be shed if you're going to stay in right relationship with God and something else must be sacrificed for you. Innocent life. That animal did nothing. That innocent life must be sacrificed for you to be redeemed to God because God takes sin seriously. Okay, But none of those sacrifices ever took away uh, our ultimate sin. They were just a teaching tool until the perfect eternal sacrifice satisfied God's perfect eternal character and nature. But watch this. A, a, a drink offering is something that somebody would offer on top of a normal thank offering, worship offering, and it would be poured out. And if you remember, where they would take these things, whether it's a meal offering, which is like grain, or whether it's a, a burnt offering, which is meat, and you put it and it's consumed. It's on fire. What happens when you put um, any liquid on a fire? You know, you know not, not so much that it'll go out, but just a cup. It'll go, and it immediately uh, evaporates and it goes away. Now, it does produce a smell that's sweet. It's an extra offering Okay, that goes on top, that brings a little sweetness to the aroma, but it's, it's there and it's gone. And what Paul is saying is, look, I don't want to be considered as great before Christ. It's important that he uses that offering. He goes, my life is just a vapor. I'm not here very long, and I certainly am not adding anything 
to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Or it's not in any way making my sin. My life is not in any way helping my sin standing before God. This is why this is important. A drink offering never helped out in terms of restoring relationship. Jesus is enough. But a drink offering is something that would be poured over a normal sacrifice of worship that was just a fleeting thing and gone. Paul said, that's what my life is. That's how he considered his life. He didn't think a lot of himself, but he said, this is my chance. and I'm going to pour it out as an act of worship. And I'm going to pour it out over you. And it's going to be, in a sense, gone right away. But that's okay. But I rejoice. Okay? I rejoice in the Lord. And I share my joy with all of you. The joy is the privilege... Okay, uh, of, of pouring myself out for the cause of Christ. Because of my gladness for the sin offering of Jesus Christ. I pour myself out and I share the joy in my responding to Christ that way with you. Do you see what he's saying right there? I mean, that's just a great word picture. And so what he says is, you too, I urge you, you rejoice in what Christ has done for you. And the same way you share your joy, what's the joy in the context here? The joy is the privilege of responding to God's perfect sacrifice. So what Paul is always saying, rejoice in the Lord. You are secure. The foundation's been laid. You've been reconciled to God. Look, that's not that big a deal if you've not yet decided that God is there. All right? And, and He is sovereign and just, and He will call you into account. And there's going to be a day when this wicked world and all that is wicked in it that's not been redeemed Him is going to be sacrificed and burnt up forever. Okay? Yet without death. Why? Because death would be good. <laughs> it would stop. It would be a, a, a compassionate thing. And God says, there's not going to be any compassion. Compassion is part of my nature and character. And so there is no compassion in hell. You don't want anything to do with me? Then I'll give you all of it you want forever. And, and I want to tell you, man, I, I just, with hell, I just, I've had to really get my arms around what hell was like. And the only way I could do it, okay, is to understand that heaven is enjoying everything that is good to its fullest expression, and hell is the opposite of that. There is nothing in hell which will remind you that there was ever a good anything that existed. And so, you know, I've said this before, I think, you know, Watermark, is that I've been talking to people at times, and they say something to me like along the lines of, well, yeah, at least I'll be in hell with all my friends, you know, partying on. And I'm like, really? Okay, well, let me just say something. Friends, are they a good thing? Yeah, they're a gift from God. All right, partying, celebration, is that a good thing? Yeah, gift of God. Drugs, are they a good thing? I I had this conversation with my kids growing up. Drugs are a good thing. Just like sex is a good thing. I I told my kids the way to call it. Drugs and sex are good. The way we use them is not. Okay? Uh, They are gifts of God. Um, I've had cocaine, I've had heroin, but I've had it in proper dosages as related, okay, to certain surgeries. Do you guys know that? The derivatives of heroin and cocaine are in, in, in the narcotics that we give people when they go uh, into surgery and when they're coming out, all right, and I haven't had it like street coke, all right, <laughs> not freebase, and I'm not mainlining black tar heroin, all right, because what people are doing there is they're saying, I don't want to deal with life the way God says I should deal with life with joy and with a perspective that this is passing away, but I'm gonna, my God is going to be an ability to, to drug myself and numb myself away from reality. My coping strategy is going to be an a delusional escape, which doesn't really bring escape. It brings more pain, more death, more addiction, more bondage, more slavery. And my reality of hell is still there. 
Okay, but I told my kids, I go, look, drugs, God gave us as a means. I mean, He put them in plants, He put them in this world as a means to which grace could be a part of what we would experience as, as He allows science to advance, He allows us to discover His creation and to use those things. You can use them well. Sex is God's gift. But if you use that wrongly, it will bring destruction and pain in your life. If you use it well, then it's going to be a source of blessing to you. So, so you can get rid of your ability to perversely use God's goodness in hell. Because there will be nothing there that will remind you of Him. But guess what? You're not going to hell. To which you should go, man, all right. All right, that's really, are you sure? I'm going, I'm as sure as I can be given that there's an empty tomb that, that the sin offering was acceptable. And so the wages of sin, which is separation from life, death, Okay, God is life, have been taken away and have been offered to you. And you go, dude, if that's taken care of, i got nothing to worry about. Because this is a fleeting life. It's a vapor. And Paul goes, that's right. And pour your life sweetly out. So it will just evaporate up before God in a pleasing aroma. I love doing that. You should rejoice in responding to the reality of heaven. And the reason most of us are not motivated to live effectively for Christ is we don't remember what He has done. Hell's not that big a deal. Separation from God's not that big a deal. My sin's not that big a deal. And God says, no, it's a big deal. Rejoice. It's taken care of. And make it your joy to respond to that which you rejoice in. You got it? I got to tell you, man, I watch the way you guys do it. I would say that it's my privilege to serve you guys. It's my joy to pour myself out. And I watch you guys rejoicing in who Christ is and pour yourself out in so many other ways. So that's what's going on there in 17 and 18. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you. Now what he does now for the rest, I'm going to really skip over this section for the most part. Because I think a lot of you people go, okay, well, for sure, Jesus, that's God. All right? And sure, Paul, you're an apostle. But no one can live like this. And he goes, let me just give you two more examples of guys that are living just like this. Timothy and Epaphroditus. And so what you're going to have there from 18 all the way down through the rest of chapter 2 is Paul giving them two more people that they really ought to follow. Um, and, and let's just look. Epaphroditus was the pastor of Philipp, uh, the Philippian church um, who was just a guy that Paul said, this is a good man. So just look over at verse 28. And, and he says, therefore I've sent him, meaning Epaphroditus, all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you, because I care about you. You know, and I don't want you to fret that, 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 um, that you're going to lose your pastor. And so I'm sending him back to you. You sent him to me, because you poured him out as a drink offering to me, because it was your joy to go, hey, let's take our pastor and send him to Paul, because Paul's the one that helped us understand about Christ in the first place. Well, he got there, he got sick, you know, and the people heard that he got sick, and they got discouraged, and so Paul said, I mean, go back and show me you're well now. What's really interesting, by the way, is that Paul didn't heal Epaphroditus. Okay, God did. And so later in Paul's ministry, you'll find that even some of the miraculous sign gifts that the apostles did and whatnot were not as actively present. Paul didn't, wasn't some healer that always walked around healing people, but he knew that God could do whatever he wanted to. But Paul didn't say, I healed him. Paul said, by the grace of God, he was restored. God allowed him to live just like Paul felt like he would live in this imprisonment because it was still not time for them yet. So anyway, he, he sent Epaphroditus back, and this is what he says. This is just a very simple thing I want to uh, observe. Um, receive him, verse 29, with all joy. Hold men like him in high regard. And so now you've got to say, so, well, what kind of men, again, should you hold in high regard? 
What kind of people ought to be your heroes? Jesus, right? Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus. What kind of guys are those? Look at verse 30. They poured themselves out for you. This is the kind of guy you had a hold in high regard. Those who will come close to death and are willing to die for the work of Christ. Risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Okay, what Paul's saying is you sent him to me so that you could give me more. So the kind of people that you want to make heroes to your kids, the kind of guys that you want to say, I want to be like that guy, are people that are pouring themselves out for the only thing that matters. Who are the typical heroes, though, of our kids? It's not people that are pouring themselves out for the only thing that matters. It's people that are going to focus on the kinds of things in chapter 3 that Paul says lead to death. Things of this world. Comfort in this world. Appetites of this world. And man, isn't, excuse me, isn't it awful, isn't it amazing um, just how attractive and how much sense it can make to just live for this world? And that's why Paul's going to say, watch your mind. This world's not your home. You're not Philippians. You're not Dallasites. Okay? Your citizenship is in heaven. But doesn't it feel like you're a Dallasite? It does to me. All the time. And that's why I've got to hold fast to the word. I want to say what I said again yesterday. This is crazy talk. Okay? This is, this is manipulation and mind games, unless it's true. And so if you have not done your work to determine as to whether or not Jesus was who he said he was, that his tomb is empty, that he was very God of very God, you've got to do your work. Ask your questions. Check it out. Taunt the Bible. Mock the Bible. Try and prove the Bible wrong. Okay? But by that I mean go after those answers. One of the things I've always disdained about most spiritual organizations is it was like, hey, shut up, man. Don't ask questions around here. Just kind of get in line and go along. That's what cults tell you to do. All right? God is not afraid of your questions. He is truth. And if something is true, then no amount of scrutiny can affect it. So you want to talk resurrection? Let's talk resurrection. You want to talk creation? Let's talk creation. You want to talk uh, morality and philosophy? Let's talk cr- morality and philosophy. Okay, you want to talk the problem of evil? How can a loving and sovereign and all good God allow evil and, and destruction in this world? Let's talk it. Come on. Do your work. But once you've figured out what is true, then run after truth. Okay, and make your home where truth is. You are people that are being redeemed out of deception. And the father of lies who wants to distract you and lead you to death. Okay. So here we go. Another, another little fun little Mark Twain quote that I, I, you know, Mark Twain said this. Mark Twain was what? What was his professional career? Not just a writer. What was Twain really known for? He's a comedian. So he was. He was a humorist. Okay? And Mark Twain said this. I've never greatly envied anyone but the dead. I've always envied the dead. And what he really meant by that is, look, I, I, this life to me is not really characterized by joy. Uh, you know, he actually lost a little girl to epilepsy and got so grieved and overwhelmed by it that he couldn't even go to her own funeral. And, uh, and, and, and he just says, you know what? The only people in this life that have peace are the dead. Twain didn't know Philippians. Here's Jesus. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he said, I give you my joy. All right. In John chapter 15, just you know, write that down. It's a great little verse. John 15, verse 11. It says, I give you my joy that it might remain in you and that your joy might be made full. Write down Psalm uh, 16, 11. Psalm 16, 11 
that says um, that you have given me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and in your right hand are pleasures forever. And so here's a guy that's just like Twain, acquainted with grief and sorrows, but Jesus says, I want to give you my joy. Remember, Jesus left everything to come serve you and to pour himself out for you because he knew the glories of heaven. And because he is love, and love will not hold for itself that which it has. Love, by its very nature and characteristic, always must share. And so here comes Jesus. So watch what Paul does right here. Uh, one of the ways to really understand and study your Bible, and I, I started to say this earlier and I, I got lost, but it is to be an individual that um, you label things, you pick key verses, you find words that repeat. I talked about the words mind, the words you know, remember, go together, or think. The, uh, the word things is all through Philippians, the word rejoice. But what I like to do is I like to title chapters. Uh, it's an easy way to remember what certain places you just, you just kind of go, okay, what am I going to first of all call this book? And, and you write down your own. Read the book and go, what in a sentence could I call this book? And don't try and be theological. Make it memorable. And then you kind of want to break it down and go, okay, what's this first chapter about? Or what's this paragraph saying? And you can really build a way where you know, you know, when somebody says something, you go, okay, that's right here. And before long, you'll have a lot. Now, one of the guys I think is the best in the world at this is a guy named Warren Wearsby. Warren Wearsby did this as well as anybody I know. And I sometimes look at the, the way that he would come up with stuff. And I just come in, that is genius. I don't like to look at Wearsby stuff. Because once you find it the way another person labels it, you're like, oh, that's the exact perfect label. That's, I, that's the label. And now what am I going to do? Go with a, just an average Joe label? Well, the, so, no, do your best. And what, you know, either come up with like a, a monomic. You know what a monomic is? And so like, let's just say you want to use the word joy. And so find a... Um, uh, if, if Philippians was that, I know there's four chapters in Philippians, Philippians, but maybe you could just come up with even like joy with an exclamation part. So maybe the first chapter you could start with, label with a J and O for the second. I, I haven't done this one, but like O could be other centered is chapter two. You know, uh, Y could be you know you don't have what it takes uh, for chapter three because Christ does. And but whatever it might be, just come up with some creative way. Wearsby did a great job with this book. Here's what he says: Chapter one is chapter one is the single mind. To live as Christ, to die as gain. Chapter 2, the submissive mind. Um, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit with humility of mind. Consider others as more important than yourself. All right, chapter 3, the spiritual mind. Okay, that you pursue. Uh, I'll show you verses right here where he says, think this way. Don't think the world's way. Chapter 4, the secure mind. That's what he did. And that really helps you understand this book that's teaching you to live as Christ lived, which is joyful in a joyless world, is because you're single-minded about uh, how you're going to live, you're submissive in the way that you live, you're spiritually minded in the way that you appraise things, and that you are secure because of that. Okay, but anyway, you can, you can lay a book out that way and remember it. So let's look at chapter 3. All right. I, I love this. This is one of, you know, if you, if you teach for a living, you'll love chapter 3, verse 1. It says, finally, my brethren, you know, two more chapters. Right? It's, uh, he thought he was shutting down, but he wasn't. The Spirit of God said, no, you keep going. All right? But here it is again. Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. You know, um, Hebrews 3.13 says, Encourage each other day after day, as long as it's still called today, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so Paul, what he's doing is he's loving people. He says, don't forget. Remember, this is why God gave you community. 
Because don't you grow weary in doing good? Don't you go, isn't this crazy? Okay, even, even, let's just take it away from spiritual things for a second. Let's just talk about eating right. Do you guys know this, there's two guys here, I don't embarrass them if they want to tell us they can, but there's one guy here, you saw uh, his picture up there, John Carswell, I'll, I'll, he's not, he, you know, I know Cars wouldn't mind this. He was up there and you looked at that picture of Carswell with, with uh, Michelle Obama, and then last night with that little dog, he didn't look the same. He's lost 121 pounds. 121 pounds. Okay, and he's done it with encouragement and accountability. Because he said before that, he said, I just couldn't do it. I, I, there's another buddy in here who's lost 60 some odd pounds. And he's done it with encouragement and accountability. In addition to his own decision, I want to do this. You eat better. Weight Watchers will tell you, if you take Weight Watchers, you'll, you'll will lose weight. But if you do it with a Weight Watchers community, you lose 33% more weight. Okay? You eat better. You exercise more. When you have others who can help you, you're not crazy. I know your appetite wants to dive in the fridge again, but don't do it. It's not worth it. You'll feel better. You'll look better. Your life will be better. Don't do it. Okay? And so this is true in all areas of life. And I would tell you it's especially true with things that you just can't step on the scale and see improvement. Okay? I mean, we need to encourage each other with a spiritual mind. That we've done the work. Look, we're not crazy. That tomb is empty. God does love us. There is a heaven. There is a hell. We all know it anyway, and then God's revealed it to us more clearly. So Paul said, I'm going to keep doing it, because that's what loving people do. And then he says, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Beware of guys that are going to tell you otherwise, that this world, your righteousness is earned on your own account. Um, by the way, there's two ways you can go with dogs. First of all, rabid dogs that will affect you in a negative way. But let me just show you. I think I gave you, Clint, didn't I give you Isaiah 59 uh, as one of the verses? Um, but Isaiah 59, maybe I didn't. But Isaiah 59, 56, rather. Isaiah 56, verses 9 through 12. Let's just turn there. I want to show you something. There was a group of people around the nation of Israel. And then this is why it's so important. You know why our country is in trouble? Because the teachers, the pastors, the prophets... The leaders in our country are not speaking truth. And so America is on a highway to hell. And I'm not just talking about, you know, sin behavior. I'm just talking about a worldview that will lead to our destruction. I, I have said for the last 20 years, I, I, you know, I first heard it and I've repeated it, that every great civilization in the history of mankind has always destroyed itself from within. And I, I, you know, and so I kind of always, we all knew that, right? Rome fell, you know, it wasn't built in a day and it didn't fall in a day, but it destroyed itself. Okay, and and I used to think about that and go, surely we won't do that. Man, in the last 20 years, we have done that on steroids. And, And we're just accelerating it and we get more and more arrogant in our mocking at principles that are true and wise and that made our country great. Um, you know, this whole textbook thing, it's amazing that there's, uh, that's going on in the state of Texas. The things they're having to argue for to put in that textbook. Um, there are certain, I just, where did I read this? That, that somebody wanted to put the Constitution in there, but they wanted to write a disclaimer about our Constitution. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. We're just mocking the foundations that made us great and free. And, and we're going to pay a great price for it. Whenever you've got leadership not doing its job, Okay, uh, if you've got a watchdog that isn't watching, you've got dead sheep. Okay, 
And, um, and I really think what Paul's doing in Philippians 2 is he's saying, watch out for these rabid dogs that will infect you with their sickness. But there's another term, dogs, that are used for, for a watchdog that's sleeping, that's not doing what it should. It's right here. He goes, um, in verse 9, it's Isaiah of chapter 56. He's saying that there's judgment that's going to come upon Israel. And I'm going to call the beasts of the field, all you beasts of the forest, come to eat. In other words, devour my people. Why? Because you have been uh, godless. You've not been who you're supposed to be. You're living with principles that I can't support. Your watchmen are blind. All of them know nothing. All of them are mute dogs, unable to bark, dreamers lying down who love to slumber. Think of your dog in a warm day, in the sunlight, by the bay window. Just laying there, kind of, you know, just, you know, like that. And if that's your watchdog, you are in deep trouble. Because the thief is going to step over him, all right? The bear will come in and devour your flock. If that is your sheepdog, and he is asleep, then you are in great peril. If the dogs are greedy, they are not satisfied. They are shepherds who have no understanding. They have turned to their own way. Each one to his unjust gain to the last one. If they're eating the master's food, you've got trouble. Come, they say, let us get wine. Let us drink heavily a strong drink. Tomorrow will be like today, only more so. There is no, what the prophets of Israel were saying is, there's no judgment coming. God's not upset with us. Don't you worry about the fact that God said we've got to be a holy people. Today's going to be just like yesterday. America. We'll just print more money. Today will be just like yesterday. We've gone through this before. It's going to be okay. Today will be just like yesterday, only more so. It's going to work out. Stay tuned. But even more so in spiritual things, there are people that that mock at you who think that there's judgment coming. They're going to go, where's this imminent return of Jesus Christ? What a joke. Okay, well, yeah, they even say, you know, in Second in, in Peter chapter 3, Paul, uh, Peter talks about this. Uh, they're called uniformitarianists. They think that the world is always going to be the way it always was. And Peter says when they say this, they forget that there was a time that God already judged the world through a flood. But we and our genius and our brilliance have already explained away the universal flood, even though there's overwhelming scientific evidence that they even try and distort and twist to talk about why the earth is millions and millions and millions of years old. Okay, when there's a completely biblical explanation that doesn't require millions and millions and millions of years, that you got millions of you know dead things buried in rock layers all over the earth, that can also happen when there's a universal flood, and then everything just settles over a period of, of months right after that. It's completely consistent with the biblical record. But they've even found a way to explain that away and, and show us why we're just here in a long progression, a long march, and um, and the world is what it is. Okay. And they're going to say the world will be tomorrow like it is today, only more so. Quit your talking of dread. Paul says, we're the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus, but no confidence in the flesh. There are people who talk about how the way you're going to be great with God and they are poisonous is through religion, through certain acts and behaviors. Now, we do know that there were times that God said, I want you to do these things because they were teaching tools. Okay, to remind us of certain things. But Paul said circumcision was never the issue that made you right with God. It was in the Old Testament. The righteous have always lived by faith. Okay, circumcision was something that people of faith did, but they weren't saved because of circumcision. They were saved, and so one of the things that a saved person did is the outworking of their faith in God is they circumcised themselves. Okay, not going to teach on circumcision right now. We're going to keep moving. But dead works... 
Okay, dead works is not the way to get right with God. Paul's saying you aren't trusting in dead works, you're trusting in a circumcised heart. All right, look here in verse um, uh, 4. What Paul's going to do is he says, if anyone wants to brag about their flesh, I can do it. And so what I want to just show you in chapter 3 is that Paul's going to say, I'm going to give you my resume, but then in verse 7, I'm going to give you really what makes me righteous. Okay? And he breaks it out. If, If you want to... What you can really do is you can look at this chapter and you can say, Paul's past in verses 1 through 11. And, 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 and there's a key, word, a key verse, it's right there in verse 8. This is what Paul thinks about his past. Okay, He counts it as rubbish. These are the friends that are going to go and, and help folks hike. He, he says, I count my past as irrelevant. All I consider important is Christ. Okay, Verses 12 through 16, he talks about his present. Okay, right now? And so, if you read verses 12 through 16, let's just do that together. And I'll show you, let you guys study your Bible, see if you can, you can figure out in 12 through 16 what Paul says he wants to do in his present. Not that I've already obtained to what I want to be as a follower of Christ, or I've already become perfect, but I press on so that I might lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ. Brethren, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, as many as are perfect have this attitude, and if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. What's Paul say he wants to do with his present? There's a little phrase that shows up twice in there. He says, I want to press on. I'm going to take my today and I'm going to become more of who Christ wants me to be. My past, I count all things as rubbish except for a relationship with God. My present, I'm going to press on to do everything I can to experience all that Christ wants me to experience in this life. And then the rest of chapter 3, you pick it up to 17 down through the bottom. What Paul's going to do is he's going to say, I look for what's to come. So I I count all things as loss. I press on today. And my citizenship isn't here. Look at verse 20. I eagerly wait for a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. I look forward with a vision of hope. And so chapter 3 is all about the spiritual mind. If you'll go through and you'll look about how people who don't have a spiritual mind will worry about the things of this world. But Paul says the only thing I care about is Christ and becoming more like Him. And so what I'm going to do with my today is I'm going to press on. And so I just want to encourage you guys with this. One of the things that is true of a mature spiritual believer is that they are always, always seeking to become more of what God has redeemed them to be right now. And they don't limp towards, you know, limp in grace. They run to glory. All right, Wearsby, just again, in his genius, you know, I was done studying when I realized I wasn't going to get, uh, be able to teach the whole book the way that I wanted to, just the overarching things. Here's what he does. This is really good. Paul was a, an accountant who considered, who counted all things rightly. He, he had a different accounting method. The world accounts for works, okay? And Paul says, I don't count for my works. I account my works as loss compared to the resume of Jesus Christ, okay? He was an athlete who um, pressed on and he was an alien who did not live for this world and so you see how he remembers philippians 3 he's a good accountant who's a good athlete who's a good alien and that's the way he broke out the chapter an accountant who counts all things lost except for christ an athlete who i press on and he's an alien who i look forward to my real home when i'm there
There's your chapter 3. And then you can, there's so much rich stuff that you can look, um, you can look at and, and dive in through here. Let me see if there's something I don't want to make sure I miss. Um, let's just look at verse 10, because that really uh, is one that I want to make sure that we don't blow right through. Let's read 8 through 10. Uh, let's start actually verse 7. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. What, what Paul is going to say here is that I have found the pearl of great price. I have found the field with a treasure in it. And so I am selling everything. I am not going to stand before Christ with any resume. This is really important, guys. If there's anything in your life that you think you're going to give to God as a means to be reconciled to Him, let go of it. Paul said, I'm trashing my resume so that I can count Christ's resume as the only thing that matters for me. When people, I, I, you know, we, we, one of the tools we teach people when they share their faith is to ask the two diagnostic questions. The first one is, are you at a point in your spiritual life where if you died today, you know you'll go to heaven? And people go, yeah, I go, okay, on a scale from one to ten, how sure are you? And most people want to be humble. And so they'll say six or seven, which sounds really humble. And you say, well, great, so... You know, I don't think there's going to be a quiz in heaven, but what do you think you would say if God says, why well, shall I let you in? And about 90% of the people that you meet will say, well, I, I did the best I could. And I was largely a loving person, and I handled things as well as I could, and you know, I'm no Hitler. They'll say something like that. Okay? And then you go, would well, you mind if I would tell you what I would say and why? And they go, sure. I go, oh, I know I'm going to heaven. And they look at you, that is arrogant. How in the world could you say you know you're going to heaven? Well, because I'm not going to say that I was largely a good person. What's really arrogant is that you thought that what you were doing was going to put you maybe at a 70% chance of appeasing a perfect God who said his standard is perfection. And so you think your life is going to be close enough that you might, 70% chance, be considered by God perfect. But I'm not going to turn in my resume. I'm not going to say I was a pastor. I'm not going to say I was a man of one wife. I'm not going to say I was this, that, or the other. I'm going to say, I know that I am not what God created me to be, but I rebelled against Him, and that His love was expressed to me through His Son, Jesus Christ, who He counted as worthy and evidence through His resurrection from the dead. And so based on His word, His promise, and my dependence on that, because God has said, I will go to heaven, I will go to heaven. I think I'm going because of what God has done. You think you might go because of what you're doing. That's arrogant. Okay, that's Paul. That's Philippians three. Okay, and so what then he says is, I'm going to more than this. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish. You see the word count; it shows up four times right there. But rubbish, so that I might gain Christ. The, the word rubbish there is, you know, um, Paul saying religion is rubbish. It's stuff you throw to dogs. Your best works. Isaiah 64 6 says that your best words works are to me, God says, as filthy rags. Which you guys have heard, I'm sure if you've been around that verse before, were rags the day that were used by women during their time of issue of blood. He goes, don't, don't present that stuff to me. It's unacceptable. Okay. And so Paul says, all I want to know, I want to know him, which means personally experience. I want the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to be conformed to his death. I want to, I want to attain to the resurrection from the dead. I want to come out of this dead malaise of sin and rebellion. And the only thing I want to do is know more of Christ. I would tell you guys, if Jesus is who he says he was, and God is who he says he is, and in his presence is fullness of joy, why would you say anything else? But the problem is, is we don't stay and live in that reality. 
Okay? So that, that, is, that is Paul's accounting. And so out of that, in verse 13 and following, he says, this is why I am running hard this way. So the guy that runs hard this way, okay, is going to then be informed this way. Let's just go to chapter 4 and wrap it up. In chapter 4, you can break up very simply this way. God's peace, God's power, and God's provision. All right? And, and, and what, what you've got, this makes you secure. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy, my crown, stand firm in the Lord. And then he goes and he just says, I want to urge you know, these two gals, live in harmony in the Lord. Quit being concerned about earthly things. Indeed, true companion, I ask you to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. In other words, encourage each other the way I'm going to encourage you. Here it comes in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Paul is all about them focusing on that Truth, that is the only truth that matters. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. What's clearly going on is that there were two women that were arguing about stuff that was fleeting. Who knows what it was? You know, when we did the very first journey and we read through the Bible a year, my girl, my little girl Kirby, this was the section that she was assigned. And she wrote the devotional for Philippians chapter 4. And she grabbed this. And she picked on that little verse in chapter 4. She chose to focus on the argument, the fact that Yodia and Syntyche were not living in, in uh, harmony. And she just made the observation that, you know what my problem is with my sister? It's we argue over stupid stuff. Don't wear that shirt. I'm going to wear that shirt tomorrow. Okay? Um, you know, she just said, uh, we, we get petty differences. And the reason is because we focus on possessing and owning our own stupid things. And we take our mind off all that matters. And if Christ, for my sake, though he was rich, became pure, if I've got a t-shirt my sister wants, why wouldn't I give her my t-shirt? Even if I was going to wear it tomorrow. Even if somebody else will see her wear it and they'll think it's her t-shirt. Who cares? She wrote that when she was nine. Okay? And, um, and, and I can just remember reading that. And I go, you know what? What is the cause of most of the quarrels among us? Uh, do you do me a favor, Clint? Type in James 4, 1 through 3. I'll just show you. This is, this is the reason. That's why Paul is saying, church in Philippi, you guys just have a good spirit. Love each other. Don't fight over the last cookie. What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war on your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you don't ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your own pleasures. And, um, and so what Paul's just saying is, come on, gals. Yes, help each other. Remember what's important. Verse 6, okay? Be anxious for nothing. This is one of those verses that's on some coffee cup you own. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will uh, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That word guards the military term. Paul always looked what was around him. And he thought about a guy that was standing guard over him. And Rome thinks that he's being protected because he's chained to that guard. He goes, you know what's chained to me? The truth of God. That's what's chained to me. And that's why I have peace. Okay, and so look, let me just say this about prayer. We often, when we think of prayer, what immediately comes to your mind? Most of us, it's knees, okay? It's folded hands, 
And I want to just enlarge your view of prayer. I think that one of our biggest problems, the reason we all feel guilty and we don't think we have a good prayer life, is because with the activity of prayer is something that we don't do enough. And we should do the activity of prayer, which is basically being still. But let me just tell you about the attitude of prayer. And what I think Paul is saying here, when you think of Philippians 4, 6, and 7, because what most of us do is this. We go, God, please, my kid has cancer. I don't know if he's going to live. I don't want to worry. You tell me if I pray and thank you and come to you that you'll guard my hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Amen. And then we get up, and then we worry again. And I prayed, and Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, if I prayed, that I wouldn't be this way. Okay? Look, look at Psalm 1 with me. This, by the way, is the chapter your kids have memorized this week. I think you're going to hear them quote it tonight. Okay? How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. What are wicked men? Men that don't know God, don't acknowledge God, don't follow God, nor stand in the path of sinners. What are sinners? People who rebel against God, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Who are scoffers? Things, people that don't believe in eternity, don't believe in judgment. And if you walk with those guys, you're going to be filled with worry and sickness and death. And petty differences, but instead, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on that law, he meditates day and night. Which is another word for prayer. Who prayerfully keeps the word of God, constantly washing over his soul, so that he doesn't get washed up in all that the world will tell us to get washed up in. That person, what, look what he'll be like. He will be, he will be secure. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. His leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They're like the chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. But go back and look at verses 1 through 3. Verses 1 through 3 says, you're going to yield your fruit in season. You're not, your leaf is not going to wither when the heat comes. Because your roots reach deeply to a stream that others don't know about. But you've got to hold fast. You see how Paul keeps repeating these ideas in the book? Hold fast to the word of life. Let the word of God work in you. Don't be anxious, but meditate on the word of God. Be prayerful. That's what that means. And so some of you guys go, well, I'm still anxious. God's not guarding my heart. It's because you went and you did the activity of prayer, but then you got up and you went with the activity of self-control and worry and management. And Paul goes, that's not the idea. Pray without ceasing. Pray at all times in the Spirit. Encourage each other towards things that are true. That's what the body of Christ does. We still weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn, but we then remind each other gently of these things so that God will guard our hearts and minds. Okay? So you pray rightly, and then in verse 8, that will enable you to think rightly. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellent, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Live here. This is, you know, one of the great little teaching tools with your kids is get a little cheese cloth, right? It's a strainer. And and just show them how, um, you know, most kids don't like orange juice with pulp. Okay. And, and, and so get maybe some real pulpy orange juice and get a cheese strainer and just put it over a cup and just say, here, you're going to have this orange juice. Go, I don't want that orange juice. Go, here, well, how about this? Let's just run it through this strainer, which will catch all the bad stuff, and then you'll have your good orange juice that you like. Real good, you know, run through that cheesecloth, and you'll get that orange juice you like. 
and see it, it's good, it's sweet, it's without that junk in it. And then, and then when they want to go see a movie, what you want to do is go look. Or you want to go listen to a song, or you want to do that. Say, look, what God's going to do is He's going to strain out the bad stuff. And so what we do a lot of times when they want to go see a movie, we go, look, is this stuff true? Is it right? Is it pure? Is it lovely? Is it excellent? Is it worthy of praise? Let's, let's let our mind dwell on these things. And so we'll go and we'll look what's in that movie. Sometimes we'll even watch movies intentionally and go, there's the lie, that's not true. And you can learn from that way if there's some redemptive quality to the movie. But what I want to say is, gang, one of the ways that you're going to keep getting sucked into the world is if you let your mind dwell on things that this world reinforces are worth living for. The images you look at, the music you listen to, the worldviews that you celebrate, they affect you. And if you're meditating on all the fun the world's having, while you're over here trying to live pure and righteous and holy lives, guess where you're going to drift? And so what the Word is saying is, look, be careful that you don't just voyeuristically live through those folks over there. You wouldn't do it, but you're going to watch them do it because it does look attractive. It does look, and, and guess what? It feeds your flesh, and, it, it's, and, and your, this flesh, which is already attracted to that stuff, immediate gratification is going to be lured by it. And the enemy's going to tell you there's life there, and it's going to start to tell you you're crazy. It's going to scoff at righteousness. And so Paul's saying, think rightly. And then if you think rightly, this is what will happen. You'll live rightly. So, so here's just a very simple application for chapter 4, verse 9. Okay, it says, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Here's what I'm going to ask you guys. You think about the future of your kids. You want the peace of God to be with them? I know you do. And so let me ask you this. Paul says, the things that you have learned from me, what are you teaching? If your kids are to really sum up what you're teaching them, what are you teaching your kids? Because you're a teacher, I guarantee you. Uh, The things that you have received, what are you giving your kids? What's the legacy you're living, you're you're leaving with your kids? So what are you teaching? What are you giving? Paul say, you received something from me. I gave you something. What did Paul give the church of Philippi? Okay, uh, things you have heard, what are you preaching? And the things that you have seen, what are you modeling? Because I will tell you, even if you don't care about your own life, if you love your kids, you've got to think through what you're teaching them. You want their marriage to be like yours? You want their life to be like yours? You want their worry, their spirit to be like yours? Okay, their values to be like yours so that they can experience what you're experiencing. And so what Paul's saying, you've got to think rightly, pray rightly, meditate on God's Word so you'll think rightly so that you can live rightly. And Paul's saying, the things you learned from me, received from me, heard and saw in me, practice these. And then you'll learn to love like I love. Rejoice in the Lord greatly. Now, at last you have received your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from one, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. In any every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. What is Paul's secret? What was the secret? After all this time in Philippians. Yeah, man, I mean, this world's not my home. And if I'm cold for a little bit of time, and if I'm, uh, then, then, you know, if this is where God has me, he hasn't forgotten me, he's doing something in my prison. Okay? If he's given me a lot, he's, he's doing something with my abundance that I can further Christ. The way that I suffer will be, the, the way that I suffer with hope is going to be a declaration to the world that I know something they don't know. That will glorify God. 
the way that I take my abundance and use it to bless others will be a sign that this world is not worth living for and it will glorify God. Paul said, I've learned the secret of everything. It's to set my mind on things above and to believe that Jesus is real, that He is going to come, that there is going to be a, a time when God will reveal truth. And so I can go through whatever I go through. And if God, you know, Lord, I wouldn't want to be an individual that... How about this? Nick Voyages. All right, remember Nick when I brought him to Watermark? No arms, no legs, born that way? I, I can't tell you how many people came up to me afterwards. I never thought in my entire life I would envy somebody with no arms and no legs. But I, I envy that guy. I had a number of people tell you know what? I kind of did too. Because Nick had learned the secret of being content, whether he has arms or legs or not. Okay, does he want arms and legs? He would go, sure, because it looks like arms and legs are a lot of fun. But you know what? If God wants to pour me out this way for his glory, this fleeting way, I am confident of this, that he will more than make up for this journey through life for me. And so there is joy, there is peace, and there is hope in my life. And I just look at him and go, dude, what am I going to do with my arms and legs? And most of us, we don't like our legs because they get stretch marks and our arms because they're flabby and we complain about that. Instead of lifting holy hands to the Lord. Okay, what Paul is saying is because I know the secret of this life, that God glorifies himself whether in my sickness or in my health, I can face anything. Because God will strengthen me with this truth, with his person there reminding me, with his spirit saying, you're my son, this world's not your home, hang in there, and if I'm going to glorify myself by you laying in a hospital bed infirm, if I'm going to glorify myself with you having to change your zip code, if I'm going to glorify myself with you being a single mom, if I'm going to glorify myself with you living in a marriage with somebody who's an absolute jerk, hang in there. Just don't grow weary. And when the world says, how can you do it, you tell them how to do it. Nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. Paul's saying, but that doesn't mean that we should just go, okay, and is that other people are suffering, let them suffer because God's glorifying himself that way. What Paul's saying is it's appropriate. If you've got a means to alleviate somebody's suffering, that you do it. And you did well. And so the Philippian church, Paul said, I was okay if nothing changed. But look, this is what God does. He takes people that can help me, okay, and they help me. And so you did well. You yourselves know, Philippians, that in the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my means. Not that I sought the gift itself, because I don't need the gift, although God was kind to give me the gift. But I seek the profit which increases to your account. Do you guys get that? <laughs> so, I mean, it, 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 Paul's saying when you live this way, Remember Hebrews 6.10? Our God's not so unjust so as to forget your kindness towards the saints. You can't outgive God. But I've received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied. I've received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And, and, and one of the last little teaching points I'll do in this is let you guys know, do you know that we still offer sacrifices today? Do you know the New Testament Christians still offer sacrifices? You know what they are? They're not meal offerings. They're not trespass offerings. They're not sin offerings. Let me just walk you through New Testament sacrifices. All right? Here is one. Okay? It's given your loot. All right? And the way you give that for the purposes of the kingdom and for the good of others, for the glory of Christ, is a pleasing sacrifice to God. 
Okay? But look at 1 Peter 2.5. Let's just go through. I think I have these in order for you, Clint. But 1 Peter 2.5. He's talking here about how we're all priests. In the, New, in the Old Testament, just the priests offered sacrifices. In the New Testament, we're all priests. He says, you as living stones are be, being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. So priests, you offer things. Here we've got one in Philippians 4. Um, 18, one acceptable sacrifice is when we use material resources to bless others in the name of Christ as a, a, a source of real physical material comfort. I, 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 you know, I had someone in this room share with me that a couple at Watermark recently um, knew of some situations that was going on in an anonymous way, left 700 bucks for them. As a, and just said, I want you to have this for this reason. We've seen this. And that person go, why do I ever question God? Right? Why do I ever? Because I didn't even know I told about this need. But somebody else who loves God was watching. And they just put $700, gave it to him through another person. And they said, here you go. They actually gave it to the security guard. Knew they were going to be there. And anyway, they got it to him. And that person then goes, thank you, God. That is an acceptable, pleasing sacrifice to God. Because this single mom was like, Lord, Lord. Okay? And so every now and then God wants to give you that provision, even though you don't need it to be joyful and rejoice, but he gives you that and you go, man, Lord, wow. How great is that? It was what Scott and Julie shared last night. You know, we don't love God because people give us a week in Colorado. We love God because we love God. But, man, how sweet was that? Okay, that's one. Here's another one. Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is the most obvious one. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. It's your spiritual service of worship. So the way you live your life every day is an ongoing sacrifice. You're pouring yourself out. Salute lives. Look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16. Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. The sharing there in the context is with your lips. Sharing praises, sharing encouragement. And every time you do that, it's an acceptable sacrifice to God. So in the New Testament, okay, your life is a sacrifice. Your loot, just to give the L's is how I remember it, all right? Your lips. And then look at Romans fifteen sixty. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles ministering as a priest the gospel of God so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Somebody give me an L that you're going to offer to God that you did something so that you could offer them to Him as a sacrifice to Him that you love. When you preach the gospel, who do you preach it to? The lost. Yeah. Yeah. And what Paul's saying is, man, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm going to present to God the sacrifice of lost lives redeemed through the preaching of the gospel that I give to them. Okay? An offering of the Gentiles. Okay? Folks far from God. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And find your own that worked for you. But I just, the way I remember it is the one, the first one was in Philippians 4.18. You know, the, the loot, the money that you sent me, okay, was an acceptable sacrifice to God because you did it because of your love for me, your brother. To honor Christ. Uh, life, your life, that's Romans 12. Okay, lips is Hebrews uh, 13, 16. And then the lost, right there in Romans. So hey, let me ask you this, priest. How are you doing, man? It's a, it was a big deal in the Old Testament when the priest did not offer sacrifices that were acceptable to God. 
Do you want to know why the church is an offense to God? Because we don't use our loot to glorify God. We're not looking around for ways to go, who is out there? Who needs what I've got? And we just hold that sacrifice. By the way, in Malachi, it talks about we're supposed to give our best, not our leftovers. Most of us give this way. Once I've killed all the fatted lambs that I want to eat and spent all my money the way I want to spend it, if I've got this old sickly lamb over here that I probably don't need anyway, you know, when, during the food drive, I'll go back then, I'll grab the cranberries that Grandma left here six years ago, and I'll put that in the food drive. Okay? That's not exactly what God had in mind. Okay? The Bible talks about giving your best to Him, your first to Him. Church doesn't do that, man. We give begrudgingly. But if you know who God is, and it's a way to express your love for Him, and you're focused on that, you want to give Him your best, not your leftovers. How are your lips doing? Do you speak psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? Do you lift up a sacrifice of praise? Are you Paul that's always coming around the church and reminding them of things that are true? How are you doing there, priest? How's that sacrifice going? Or do you grumble and dispute and complain like others? Paul says, that's not what priests do. Okay, How about your life? Is your life a living, holy sacrifice? That people watch the way you die every day so that God could live in you. And then here's one. How many lost people are you going to give as a sacrifice to God? How many folks have you, are you going to be able to say, because of me, this people know the gospel. Because of me, these folks know of the wonders of God. you know why the church sucks? Because the priests suck. That's why. Okay? And when you're around a church that doesn't speak well, that doesn't give generously, that doesn't live holy, and that doesn't love lost people, you've got a church led by a bunch of dead sleeping dogs. And that church gets run over by the world and is considered irrelevant. So who are the priests? Everybody in Philippi. All of us. Okay? All of us. We just close in prayer. Just like Paul did. Now to our God and Father, be the glory forever and ever. Lord, may we leave here and greet every saint with a reminder of who they are in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you that um, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is always with us. We thank you that your scripture says in Philippians 4.19 that you will supply all our needs according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That means needs today. And Father, it means if we're in some jail relationally, if we're in some jail economically, if we're in some jail emotionally, if we're in some jail physically, that we have what it takes if we'll meditate on the things that are true to glorify you and to rejoice in the Lord and to have our joy be the way we are poured out to worship you in the midst of every circumstance. At the same time, Father, I pray that we would live lives that could, by your incredible grace, be a means to which circumstances change. Circumstances for others, and even circumstances for ourselves. I thank you for Christy and Michael's example last night, where they said, we're going to change the circumstance because I am going to live a holy life. I'm going to forgive when the world tells me I should run. I'm going to confess when the world tells me I should hide. And that, God, I thank you that when we let your spirit of truth live in us, 
You are the means through which we will have the ability to confess. You are the means through which we have the ability to forgive. You are the means through which we will have the ability to give. You are the means through which we will have the ability to speak truth because it won't be our words. It will be the words that you've taught us from your word. You are the means through which we can bring lost people to you as your spirit convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment as we talk about Christ. And you are the means through which, Father, we can live holy lives as we yield to your spirit. So we just thank you for this book, Father. We pray that we would count all things as lost except Christ. We pray that we would press on, that we might experience more of the fullness of what you intend for us. We pray, Father, that we would look forward with a vision that there is a heaven and that one day you'll make it right and that we would, Father, hear from you, well done, good and faithful church. Well done, priests. You poured yourself out and it was a sweet, fragrant aroma to me. And I watched it. I thank you, Father, that our salvation is by grace through faith alone. But I thank you that when you work out your goodness in us and it brings blessing to our life, you even grace upon grace reward us in a way that we can't yet fully understand. So help us to love each other. Help us to enjoy the rest of this day. I pray, Father, that um, whatever it is you still want to accomplish in our lives, that you do it. And I pray that we would go back again and again to your word, Philippians and every other book in the Bible, and uh, be transformed by it. Thank you for my friends and the patience with which they've studied this book with me. May we live it boldly together. Amen. All right. So we obviously touched on the high parts of those last couple of chapters, but, man, this book is so filled with stuff. And what I want to remind you with is this. When you think of praying, don't think of just the activity. Think of the constant attitude with which you control and inform your mind. Encourage each other. Write letters in your lips to one another. And we will be a kingdom of priests that the world will use. Okay?